Sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes when sing a song like that, but that song certainly in particular, that building end chorus, right? We, talk, we sing about with this, this jubilant, jubilant expectation of the glorious day that he's coming, right? And what true confessions here, and I'm pretty sure I'm not alone, is that to sing that with that intense, fervent expectation is quite easy when I'm going through difficult times in my life. Oh, yeah. Oh, come, Lord. Right? You can't come too soon. But the real test of my maturity and where my heart and mind are at is when life's going really well. I mean really well. And you're enjoying life. And, you know, there's no problem with lack of anything. You've got more than you need. And all of that. everything's just kind of in its place. You know, you're shooting par at the goal. Well, okay, that's a fantasy. Anyway, just everything's going really well. Then to be able to sing with that same kind of fervency, oh, glorious day, yes, come Lord, right now. Even though my ball is in the air on the way to my first hole in one. Hey, could you hold on a minute? Okay, now you can, you see what I'm saying? Yeah. So, that's just for what it's worth about this warped little heart that Jeremiah reminds me is really black and corrupt. And that's why I need to saturate myself in the Word because that's where I get a correct assessment of myself outside of Christ, but also inside of Christ. And that's where the hope of glory is. This morning, part four. The reasons for godly giving. The dastardly despair of deadly debt. Over the years, I have been accused, and not without warrant, of not preaching nearly enough about money and giving and financial responsibility as it's taught in the Bible. But what never comes out is that if I, if I had the luxury of knowing that everybody at faith would be in service every Sunday of the series. I wouldn't be nearly as hesitant or reluctant or fearful of giving that message. And if you're not following me, what I mean by that is, imagine God calls you on your cell phone. (laughs) Okay? And with all the imperfections of coverage, and God starts talking to you, and he gets about two minutes into this conversation, and he's giving you some great news and everything else, and then all of a sudden you get to... You know, God, God, wait, wait, are you you there? Can you hear me? Can you hear me now? Yeah, I'm back again. Okay, so what was that you were saying? What I was saying was, here's the one thing you need to know to get your life together. And, I mean, this is like the key to everything. Okay, Lord, what is it? What is it? Ah! AT&T, one day. No, we dumped AT&T, finally, after many years. And it's been better, but you still get, you still get that. 
And so all that is to say is that not if, but when you miss any section of this series in particular, all the series, but this one in particular, because it's such a sensitive area of our lives. And we have so much ability for the enemy with probably legitimate reason to give all kinds of little arrows of guilt and everything. But you see, there's always this very thin line between demonic guilt, which is meant to propel us away from God, that's how you know the difference. Or Holy Spirit guilt, which is designed to propel us toward God. Sermon within a sermon. No extra charge today for that one. All that is to say is that if you have missed already one of those, one of the first three, this is all building one thing to the next. Beloved, 1 Peter 2.11, I beseech you as aliens and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against the soul. That idea of the fact that, that we're supposed to be aliens and exiles. And riding on that, I remember something I heard. I have no idea who said it, but many, many years ago. He said, you know, for, for a people that are supposed to be just passing through, we sure accumulate a lot of stuff. Yeah, yes, you are. That's an old commercial, but I just, I could not, not put that up again. I used it 10 years ago. I think that's how old it is. And uh, every time it came on, I would just watch it. His, his facial expressions were so awesome. That helplessness. Somebody help me. <laughs> oh, poor Stanley. The fact of the matter is most Americans have a good portion of Stanley Johnson within them. Deadly debt. Just maybe public enemy number two in the life of Americans. What I call deadly debt is the assassin of marriages. It's the assassin of friendships, of relationships, of personal liberty, and it's the assassin of divine obedience. What do I mean by that? Well, first, referring back to the previous messages from Haggai and Malachi about robbing God. See, that's why, what? What are you talking? That's why you got to hear those messages. But in a in a, a more uh, in a totally different context, here's what I mean. We knew, and I was for the life of me, I couldn't think of who they were. We knew a couple who had graduated in missiology, and they were going to the mission field. I mean, they wanted to go to the mission field. And they applied to certain mission agencies to do that and to get out onto the field, and they were turned down every step of the way. Guess why? Because their debt load prohibited them 
from what would be any semblance of a reasonable level of support from the mission agency and what they could approve as a budget that's doable and everything else. That's what I mean by it is the assassin of divine obedience. Debt has a stranglehold on many Americans. I'm going to give you some statistics throughout uh, this week and next week. The statistics were really hard and confusing to pin down because you'd look at one figure and it would be this and you'd look at another figure, same time period, and it was, was half of what this one said. But after looking into it, I figured some things out. So what I'm going to give you, some, a couple of them are dated, but most of them are as recent as has been published that I could find. The average credit card debt carried by households that have credit card debt, okay, meaning you have to exclude any household that doesn't have credit card debt, and that changes things drastically. But for households that carry credit card debt, the average debt of credit card debt is $16,000. That is mind-blowing. And the average APR, that's the average percentage rate, the average interest percent that you pay on credit card debt is between 16 and 20%, which means 18% is the average. I remember back when I uh, was first putting together sermons way, way, way long ago. It may have even been for school. And for some reason, I was looking at credit card, uh, credit card interest amounts. And at one time, they were like 21%. And I remember when the threshold for, according to the federal government, for prosecution of loan sharking was 20%. Oh, how things change over time. Perhaps the most acceptable sins in the American church today, even surpassing sins of physical self-control, or rather lack thereof, are sins of material self-control, fueled by the promise of immediate gratification. Why wait? can <laughs> get it now. And of course, that's been made possible just within my lifetime because of way too easy credit. Our nation, our churches, our families, our relationships are suffering from a bondage to a merciless master named debt. And while credit obviously is the vector of this plague, I want you to hear this well. Credit is not inherently sinful. So don't walk out of here going, oh, Pastor Bill says credit, credit is sinful. I didn't say that. Credit, in fact, is not inherently sinful. Now, let me explain what that means. Inherently sinful, for something to be inherently sinful, means that there are no circumstances under which something becomes or is sinful. For example, 
sex outside of marriage. Okay? That is inherently sinful. Meaning one time, that's it, just one time, you don't have to achieve a certain level before it becomes sinful. One time it is sinful. That's inherently sinful. You see, credit is not inherently sinful. It has to go to a certain place, a certain threshold, for it to become sin. Credit is not inherently sinful. If credit was inherently sinful, God would not have given, are you ready for this, rules for his people to give credit to others. Deuteronomy 23, sorry, Deuteronomy 23. You shall not charge interest to your countrymen. You shall not charge interest on money, food, or anything that may be loaned at interest. You may, on the other hand, charge interest to a foreigner. But to your countrymen, you shall not charge interest, so that the Lord your God may bless you in all that you undertake in the land which you are about to enter to possess. So God's rules for lending was if you're lending to a brother or sister, meaning part of my people, Israel, you lend to them without interest. As for everybody else, if you can get 20% out of them, woo, go for it. We are blessed in America like nowhere else in the world. And that's why people very literally risk their lives to come to the nation, the land of opportunity. Conspicuous consumption, as it is sometimes called, meaning the abundance of over-materialism that we all are blessed with, is a fact of life for Americans. But you see, the difference is is that, that between the believer and the unbelieving masses, the unbelieving masses have no barometer. They have no standard by which to judge what is proper and what is not, other than what they feel. But followers of Jesus have no such excuses. Now, if you have missed the three previous week's messages, your mind may already be taking you to certain conclusions about where I'm going with all of this in the area of debt. And in fact, right now, you may already be to the point where your mind is already shutting down. Resist the temptation to do that. As I said last week, part and parcel of God's many promises to followers of his are for blessings overflowing and blessings of provision. And we observe that pretty much all of the founding fathers, if you will, of the faith were wealthy because of God's blessing. So this isn't just your classic, typical, or all too easy, oh yeah, trash the rich. Not at all. So if you think for a second that this series is just another guilt trip with a solution of deprivation, that in order to be holy, we should be all driving beaters held together with duct tape, we should be living by candlelight, And we should be getting rid of, or or that we shouldn't be getting rid of woefully out-of-date clothing. If you think that way, you will have done yourself a great injustice. 
Even I have gotten rid of my leisure suit. Yes, I had one. Even I have abandoned the Dickie back in high school. Yeah, they were obnoxious. And especially when you'd wear them with something white. You could see the square. Some of you going, a di- Dickie? What's a Dickie? If you don't know, count yourself blessed. So let's keep in front of us that when the God-man came, meaning Jesus, God incarnate, when he came, he said in John 10 that I am the door of the sheep and if anyone enters through me, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy. That's the devil and his minions. I came that they might have life. Who are they? They, all that follow Christ, his sheep. And might have it abundantly. God loves us and God is for us. And that's why he has written the things that he has written to us for our instruction and for our good. And I emphasize this because sometimes (laughs) that we as adult Christians respond to God like we did to our parents when we were in that that ever so annoying adolescent period where we were convinced that our parents were the dumbest people on the face of the earth and that their only reason for existence was to make us miserable. And so we would whine and we'd crab and we'd complain. And sometimes we'd even convince ourselves that you just hate me. (laughs) Sometimes that might have been true. (laughs) But it was short-lived. But that's not the heart of God. That's not the heart of our Heavenly Father. Remember, Jesus said, What man is there among you who when his son asks for a loaf of bread will give him a stone? Will not your Heavenly Father do much more? So in that spirit, Jesus says more about money than about heaven and hell combined. He says five times more about money than about prayer. And where there are 500 plus verses regarding prayer and faith, there are over 2,000 concerning money and possessions. And so God talks a lot about money because he knows how large that it looms and it figures into all of our lives with the result that the lifeblood of us can be sucked out of us. And frequently in our pursuits of life to the fullest, what we end up with is life to the least. And this is why, you know it, we've all heard it, we've all seen it in our lifetimes. Some of the richest, some of the richest most famous people that we know of in our culture end up taking their own lives because they've come face to face with the emptiness there is of having it all. Having it all that this world has to give and that will not satisfy because God designed it to be that way. I once again heard somebody say, this may have been a motivational speaker, I'm not sure, but he said people spend their whole lives climbing the ladder of success only to get to the top of it realizing their ladder 
has been against the wrong wall. So remember, whenever God says no or don't, he does so with a view toward life being enhanced, not diminished. Think about life in the Garden of Eden for Adam and Eve before the fall. The only no God said to them was, oh, you can do all of this, eat all of this, whatever. But of this one, don't eat of that. Because in the day that you do, you'll become like me. And guess what? You're not me, which means you are not equipped to handle the knowledge. And the closest thing I can relate to on that end of things is the vast knowledge that we have today globally, instantly, of every catastrophe that goes on around the world to where I just put myself in this news blackout because I can't take it anymore. My shoulders are not broad enough to carry all of that. God knew what he was doing when he said, don't eat of that. Not because I'm trying to be obnoxious and deprive you from life, but because I know how to give you the most of this life and the best. And we know how that ended up. So our God who is personally invested in us says, no, to borrowing beyond what one can reasonably pay when all other priorities and obligations are taken care of. That needs a lot of qualification. Because reasonably doesn't mean, as it has come to mean for way too many Christian Americans, if I can afford to make the minimum payment I am good to go. That's reasonable debt. No, it isn't. Lenders, <laughs> my apologies. If any of you are bankers in here or anything else, mortgage people or whatever. Lenders who make their money by getting people to take loans of one variety or another, sucker untold millions of people into bondage, oftentimes by selling you, by selling me, on their idea of what we can afford. When's the last time any of you in here got a pre-approved credit application in the mail? <laughs> Yeah, save them up, you know. When the oil runs out and the deliveries have stopped and everything else, you can you have a nice little supply to keep warm throughout the winter. On top of revolving credit, which means credit card debt, most people carry numerous other loans, like student loans, obviously mortgages, home loans, maybe home equity loans, and then your bigger ticket items like cars and boats and motorcycles and sleds and new rifles and, new fa and, and you know, toys and all of that. 
And the fact of the matter is, is that Americans can't afford it. Affordability, though, is just one principle concerning borrowing. Another one, and this comes directly from the mouth or the pen, if you will, of Solomon, is called surety. Now, that's not a word that we're familiar with today. It is used in uh, some kind of legal documents and things, I believe, still, which is why you need lawyers to understand that stuff. But surety was commonly understood in the day. Here's what Solomon writes. He who is surety for a neighbor, uh, for a stranger, will surely suffer for it. But he who hates going surety is safe. Another one, Proverbs 22, do not be among those who give pledges, among those who become sureties for debts. If you have nothing with which to pay, why should he take your bed from under you? My bed? What's that got to do with anything? What he's talking about here, what surety is, is unsecured debt. Now, what do I mean by unsecured debt? When you buy a house, okay, this is why you have to get you know, valuations on what the house you want to buy is worth. And that will let the bank know how much they will loan you. It's not just what you think it's worth or how badly you want it. And the reason for that is, is that, and this is also why you have to put down a down payment, is so that if you default on that house, the bank or the, the lending agency can now repossess that house and they can sell it figuring that they will be able to recoup their losses on the loan that you defaulted on. The loan is a secured loan. It is secured by the thing that you are buying. That's not surety. What is an example or what are some examples of surety or unsecured loans? Well, first one that came to my mind was student loans. Meaning, if you default on your student loans, nobody can come in and take what? Your diploma and sell it? Okay, that's not going to get you too far. So that's an unsecured loan. Meaning, if you default, now anything else that you may have, may own, could be open, right, to forfeiture. That was the whole point about the bed in the Old Testament context. Don't become surety, because if you default on that loan, the, the, the guy who gave you the loan could come in and go, well... Okay, that bed's worth about five shekels. It's mine now. Getting the idea there what secured and unsecured loans are? Most credit or uh, unsecured loans or surety would certainly uh, include revolving debt or credit card debt. Because people today, lenders, stores, you know, department stores that you have credit with, you default on payment, they're not going to come and, you know, take your clothing off your back. There's no value to it to them. They're not going to come and repossess your television more than likely. But, nevertheless, that is surety because it's unsecured loan. Meaning there's no telling what they could do if they really wanted to. One more, and this is, this is honestly kind of funny, at least I got, it. I got a big kick out of it, and you'll see why. One more example of surety, and I would encourage parents and grandparents in particular, and siblings to really pay attention to this one. Because 
cosigning is surety. You say, what is cosigning? Cosigning means that a, say, one of your children, mom, dad, comes to you and they're, you know, they're kind of fresh out of high school. They're working 20 hours a week. And they want to buy a car. Nothing wrong with buying a car. But they don't want just any car. They don't want transportation. I can't drive that. What would people think if I drove up in that thing? But they won't give me a loan for the car, daddykins. And so if dad or mom just signs, co-signs on the loan, now the agency will give your son or your daughter the money for the car. But understand that co-signing for something means that is your loan. Every bit as much as the person who's actually buying the thing. Which means when that person defaults, it is now on you. When that person is late on a payment, it now goes on your credit as a ding because it's your loan. You co-signed. You said, in the event that this person does not pay the loan, I will assume it. That's what co-signing is all about. Now, let me give this caveat. If you decide to co-sign for something with full knowledge and fully embracing the possibility of them defaulting. And one, you have the ability to take care of that. And two, you're fine with that. Then that's your choice. But most parents or whoever sign a co cosign on a loan believing that, oh, they're going to be good for it. You'd better be good for it. What do you mean you're already 30 days late? Well, you better pick up another job. Yeah, well, I'm doing the best I can, Dad. <laughs> Whatever. Okay? But if you go into it knowing that, then fine. That's, that is entirely up to you. Again, provided you can afford that. Now, that, by the way, is not generally how a co-signing arrangement works out. Now, all of you know, well, maybe not all of you, Dave Ramsey. How many know the name Dave Ramsey? Right, Dave Ramsey is the, the current financial guru in the Christian world of all things practical and sensible concerning a biblical view of money and finances and debt and everything else. Okay? Now, understand that uh, what I'm going to read is verbatim from the Dave Ramsey website. The context is you can send in a question to Dave and he will answer it right there, public forum kind of thing. So what, what leads up to what I'm going to read is a young lady, I forget her name, he mentions her in her, Esperanza. Esperanza co-signed on a loan for her sister. And it went the way of most co-signs. Okay, and now she was lamenting. It, it's horrid. It's tragic. There's a complete rift now between she and her sister. Now she's on the hook for this loan, and I can't pay it. I can't afford the loan, and all of that. Here's Dave Ramsey's response. <laughs> Folks, this is why we tell you 
never cosine. I didn't say sometimes. I said never under any circumstances ever cosine. Quoting, well, I want to help my child get a car, uh, so give them some money. Um, I don't have the money. Ramsey says, that's my point. Don't cosign for a loan. You know why? Because you don't have any money. The reason that the bank wants a cosigner is they know the person borrowing the money is not going to pay the bill. <laughs> cosigning, I'm reading verbatim, cosigning is one of the dumbest financial things you can do. And I've done it. I've used to violate every one of these things that we teach. I have a Ph.D. in D-U-M-B. I'm, <laughs> I know what stupid looks like because I used to look at him in the mirror every day. You have to decide what's working in your life. Never, there is no reason ever to cosign. Considering I never borrow money, it would be really super dumb for me to help somebody else borrow money. That would be like two dumb things combined. Double dumb. Proverbs 17:18 says it. It says in the Bible, go figure. The contemporary English version says it this way. One who cosigns for another is stupid. <laughs> and it does. I checked it. That's exactly how it reads. That's what the Bible says. If you want to go to the New King James, it's a little gentler. It says one signing surety for another is lacking in sense. Either way, I think you just got called stupid. I'm stupid. I've done it. I know what stupid looks like. I'm not picking on Esperanza. She was 19 years old. She was stupid, and it's a stupid thing to do. <laughs> He's not done yet. <laughs> a lot of us have done stupid things. This little discussion right here is for some of you that are just about to put your finger on the pen and just about to press it on the paper and about to engage in stupid called cosigning. Don't do it. Don't cosign for your kids to get student loans. Don't cosign for your kids to get car loans. Don't cosign for your mom to get a house. Don't cosign because you're going to end up paying it and it's stupid. Don't cosign ever. Some of you think you're the exception. Your little baby's a twerp and is not going to pay the bill. <laughs> That's why they need a cosigner. Don't cosign. Never cosign. Have I been unclear here? I really don't want to leave this open to interpretation where anybody thinks I stand on this. 100% of the time, you cosign, it's stupid. There are no exceptions. You're not the exception. Don't do it. It's stupid. Co-signing is stupid. <laughs> wow. <laughs> okay, I think I got it. <laughs> but what about... No, 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 no. <sighs> Dave Ramsey. So many different ways God tells us not to get into debt and why. Proverbs 22.7 says, The poor are ruled by the rich, and those who borrow are slaves of money lenders. Back to credit card debt and revolving debt, because it is a huge scourge. I mean, all debt is, but credit cards in particular. 40% of households have missed a payment 
of more than 30 days. We're talking millions now, millions of households. 20% of households have missed a payment more than 60 days. 10% of households have defaulted on an account. The fact is America doesn't run on Duncan. America runs on credit. 1962, let's have some perspective. Households spent 60 cents for every dollar that they brought home. 60 cents spent a dollar coming in. 2002, one dollar was spent for every dollar that was brought home. And as of this past September, we now spend a dollar thirty for every dollar we bring home. That's from the Center for uh, American Progress Federal Reserve Board. In other words, we are spending 30% more than what we bring in. The church of Jesus Christ may not be in bondage to Egypt, but it is in bondage to the lenders of this nation. And as I mentioned last week, this is a spiritual problem on so many different levels. Now, boy, you may be saved by the bell. Hmm. Yeah. And actually, it's good for me because what I just said, all of what I just said was the easy stuff. <laughs> I love it. Oh, no. <laughs> yes. Yes. So, it's a, yeah, it's, we're, yeah, it's a good place to cut off. You've got enough to think about, enough to process. Feel free to check my statistics and everything else. Just remember, again, the different ways that these statistics are all figured. I'm not trying to uh, play with any figures. I'm not trying to stack a deck. I'm trying to be as candid. I spent way more hours of just objective research on financial stuff to get you accurate information than I would ever do normally. And now just a little touch back to the first message from Haggai and the second message, third message rather, from Malachi. We're spending a dollar thirty for every dollar that we make. And what is the, the usual solution? The solution is we gotta make more money. The usual solution is I gotta find more hours, I gotta pick up more overtime, I gotta maybe take part of another shift, maybe get a second job. Honey, you've been, you know, only part time, you know, and you need to go full time. Yeah, but what about the no, no we look. And God tells the people of Haggai and Malachi, look, you look for much, but it comes to little. When you bring it home, I'm blowing it away. Why? Because your priorities are so out of whack concerning my priorities for you in this life. And as a loving father, I will continue to discipline you and frustrate you, and you will go deeper and deeper into debt. Now, this is a pretty dismal note to end on. 
I would have ended on an even more dismal note, as I said. But we will, next week, get to some, by the steps, really, some practical ideas for helping you get out of debt. So there is hope. And the only investment I have in this personally, and there are a lot of things in life I can say this about, but to the glory of God's faithfulness to his word and our ignorance as baby Christians, we have tied virtually from tithe, tithe, did I say tied? Tithe, meaning 10% of our income as a starting point to the Lord, not knowing any better. (laughs) And I say that sarcastically but truthfully and we have been through thick and thin as far as our financial status in our lives and never has God failed us never have we been late on any payments and our total credit card interest in our entire married lives total in our whole lives I think, is under $2. And that goes way back to when we were first married. We bought a vacuum cleaner. By intention, we said we will pay half this month and we will pay it off the following month. That's it. So I am not coming to you as the uber hypocrite, as I do in many areas, because I am a fellow sinner, I assure you, you know that. But I am telling you that what this book says and what I am teaching you from God's words principally are absolutely solid gold. Because he loves us. Let me have you stand. Father in heaven, the enemy of our souls, I have little doubt, is just at work and has been at work trying to shoot those arrows of question, of anger, of, of, of how dare you, of give me, get away from the guilt and all of this stuff, Lord, because he comes only to rob, steal, and destroy. He doesn't want your people to come into the blessing of living for you and in honoring you with all of our stuff. And so I pray, dear Lord, anyone who has missed any message in this series would go back and discipline themselves to listen to it. And I pray that you bring them back next week to hear the rest of it and the rest of it after that and however long this goes. Because of the joy, the honest-to-goodness joy that Barbara and I have experienced and experience is awaiting them. For such is your love to us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.